Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from the QuickBook Reviews podcast. How are you all? Are you okay? I think I am, actually. I I don't know. I haven't really stopped to ask myself, but I think I'm okay. I just... You know, I was out for lunch this weekend. I've got to say it. I'm sorry. I was out for lunch this weekend and had puddings, obvs. And the person I was with for the pudding said, oh, it's too, this is too rich and had to leave it. And I'm just like, I'm sorry. Can we just establish the parameters round puddings here? You can't, you can't say a pudding is too rich. That's like saying, oh, this is too tasty. There, there is no such thing, as far as I'm concerned as a pudding that is too rich. If the richer it is, the more glorious it is. That You might say a pudding is too small. A pudding is too, oh, well, I don't know. Maybe it doesn't taste nice for some reason. You can't, no. I'm sorry, people that say that puddings are too rich don't deserve to order puddings. They should just order a sorbet and, and be happy with that. So, yeah, that's, that's my view. Am I the only one who thinks this? Because every time someone says that... I just sort of grit my teeth and think, no, don't say anything, Philippa. It's absolutely fine. They're entitled to their views on a pudding. Um, but if somebody says, oh, I had that pudding and it was so rich, I'm like, right, I'm ordering that one. Thank you very much. That's what I'll be having. Anyway, enough about puddings. Let's talk about books because, oh, I've got some great ones to talk to you about. The first one is Dead Rich by G.W. Shaw. And if you're thinking, well, who's G.W. Shaw? I've never heard of them. It's William Shaw. He's only changed his name because he's changed genre. So, yeah, that's great. And William's joining us today to talk to us about this truly incredible book. Then we've got Imposter Syndrome by Kathy Wang. Another brilliant book. We've got What Time Is Love by Holly Williams. Another great book. We've got The Kiss by Santa uh, Montefiore. Now, it's not a book I would normally read, but it's part of the Quick Read series. I'm going through the Quick Reads books. And yeah, actually, not as painful as I thought it was going to be. And then finally, we've got The Young Pretender by Markle Aditi. So, quite a few books to talk to you about. Let's get started. So the first one, as I mentioned, let me pick it up, is Dead Rich. So listen, just listen to this. Super yachts are secretive like their owners. The bigger, the richer. Like castles, they are created to inspire awe. Like castles too, they are defended. 
they are an entire world separate from the rest of us. Kai, a carefree, once successful musician, is invited by his new Russian girlfriend, Zina, to join her family's Caribbean holiday. Impulsively accepting, he learns that Zina is the daughter of a Russian oligarch and that the trip is aboard his yacht moored in St Thomas in the US Virgin Islands. On arrival, Kai discovers that the head of security has been arrested, armed guards are below deck and there's an onboard panic room and a strong sense of all not being quite right beneath the gleaming surfaces. An unnerving presence punctures the atmosphere. A murderous imposter is on board. But who is it? And let's read the first sentence. So this is the prologue um, before the action gets started. But here we go. They arrive in at luxury marinas, slipping up the Thames, shadowing the pink mansion houses that fringe the shores of Portofino, edging slowly into fat moorings off Brooklyn Marina. From the hills of Monaco, you see them crowding the harbour below. Each one is different. Each special. I love this book so much. Seriously, I, I mean, OK, I liked I like lock room thrillers. Um, I like some psychological thrillers. But you know me, I do say quite a few times that I need something different. I want something fresh. And this is it. It's amazing. It's really good. It keeps you on keeps you on tenterhooks. Um, it's someone for, well, a book club would love it, whatever. Oh, just every I think a lot of people are going to enjoy this it should it should be a huge success and uh yeah I just I loved it and you know me when I say that I I do mean it so let's talk to William now so William Shaw who is known for this particular book as G.W. Shaw the book is called Dead Rich thank you for joining me today a real pleasure well this this is a Dunner of a book. What gave you the idea for it? You know, this this is a, one of those ideas. I'm always jealous when writers say they've got something in their back pocket because I always think I've got no ideas hanging around my back pocket. But I suddenly realised <laughs> that about, I guess it's as long as 10 years ago, I heard this news report saying, and it was from the boat show, and somebody was saying, we're a bit worried about all these super yachts because people put, keep putting all this technology on super yachts and they're making them easier and easier to hack. And I thought, that's a brilliant idea. Somebody's going to write that as a thriller. And then I... You know, a few years ago, I was looking around and realised nobody had written it as a thriller. So I thought maybe I should do that. So you've been thinking about this as a as a concept for that long. That's incredible. When did you actually decide, right, this is it, I'm, I'm sitting down and I'm writing it? It was the autumn before lockdown. And I've been having a chat with... Uh, Ellie Griffiths and she's amazing because she was uh, she was has been writing three books a year and uh, she says to she said to me well a book is just how long you take it it books still take ages for me so I thought maybe there's another way around this uh, and so maybe I'll write two books in a day so I'll do one in the morning and one in the evening and I actually found that really 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 good because by the afternoon on the book that I'm slogging away at I sl get slower and slower and slower and and then, yeah. so I thought, well, maybe I'd, I'd just park that there and start something else. And I found that incredibly energising. So I started doing one, you know, my Cupidy books in the morning and the thriller in the afternoon. And I found I was ripping along um, writing the other one because you kind of just like park that bit somewhere else and, and your brain's fizzing with something else. It's It really works. It, it was really, but nobody had asked for this book. I just thought I'm going to write something that I want to write because um, I'm supposed to be writing police procedurals for the Cooper books, which I love writing. Um, but I thought maybe I'll have, you know, try something else in the afternoon. That 
that's amazing. Did you have to have a real break at lunchtime and sort of change outfits and sit at a different table to write the afternoon book or with your <laughs> journalist background? Wouldn't that be good? I'd like, because I, I think really my thriller persona should have a pair of, uh, you know, like a pipe or something, you know, as I'm writing that, you know, and the other one should be like a little grey Mac. I hadn't thought of that. Maybe that would help. Well, you never know. <laughs> I didn't have any problem doing it at all. In fact, having having had this conversation originally with Ellie Griffiths, then I was sitting on a train with her and she can't write except when she's at her desk at home and stuff like that. And I like writing on trains. And so I was going, oh, that's what I'm doing. And I could swap. I could actually do the both of them on the train journey, depending on what needed doing. And I found it, I found it really great. Um, I'm going to do it again because it's such a good idea, but I don't know what genre I'm going to do my afternoon book in. So you were much more effective in your writing of both books then because you had you had to condense the time you gave it each I day. I think that's true. I think um, it, I, this is going to sound really geeky, but I'm quite interested in the neuro neurology of writing. And I think, you know, there comes a point when you fill your brain full of a book and you've got all the sort of aesthetics of it and the, the kind of idea of the basis, the emotions it's got to set off and the characters and the settings. You've got that in your head as this thing that's constantly going round. And at some point, you know, produces new scenes and ideas. But I've realised you can actually have a separate space for another one. You know, you can you can also do that um, because you've still got to do perfectly normal things in your life as well as have a book in your head. So why can't you have two books in your head and still do it? I do realise when I get to the end of a book, I become a bit non-verbal in my communication with my my uh, family and friends uh, because it all, all is all going round in there. But there is definitely space for two for for a while. I think more than that would be a bit of a miracle. I suppose it works particularly well when you're dealing with two different genres and and quite different situations. Um, you're not sort of bleeding one story into the other, and I'd get get a bit confused. Yeah, that's a good point. I couldn't. Yeah, doing two police procedurals might get because I get confused enough with my own plots in police procedurals. Doing two would be a nightmare. <laughs> There's only so many bits of string and post-it notes you can, you can <laughs> yeah. have everywhere. So I mean, I was just I I was so. Um, surprised when I was reading this book because you know we've just gone from reading about badgers and fishermen and now we've got these incredible super yachts did you just know it was going to work when you were writing it, it I didn't entirely know it was going to going to work and I think that's a real thing that when we step out the side of the genre that we've made work you're not sure you've got the the, the muscles to do that I mean it's been really interesting thinking about because like what the for me the classic sort of um 50s, 60s, 70s adventure fiction was also a romantic fiction. And they work backwards from thrillers, uh, from crime books. Crime books, you um, know a crime's happened and you're trying to work out what's going to happen. In a romance, you know who's got to get together and you're trying to delay it happening. And that's a tension. And then adding to that thriller. But a lot of those sort of uh, 60s things had a romance element to it. So it was like all sorts of different devices that you have to use in those sort of things, just structurally about telling stories, because the reader has their expectations about what's going to happen in any genre. And it's really fun to play around with that. Um, I had no idea whether I could do it really. Um, but I just was enjoying it so much. I mean, it's just so nice to... I mean, it's lovely to to, to create worlds. The interesting thing about a, a super yacht is you can really let your imagination go wild because they are places which, um, you know, billionaires buy them. They spend, you know, millions and millions. You know, a cheap super yacht is $50 million. Um, they go up to hundreds and hundreds of them. So you can basically create any world because there is any world there. There was a... I began researching them and I kept hearing these reports about this gold, solid gold super yacht that was the 
most expensive one by way. It wasn't the biggest one, but it was a solid gold super. It had been completely plated in gold, gold everywhere and things like that. Turned out it doesn't exist. But it was on Business Insider and all these other websites because nobody had any idea that it 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 um, couldn't exist. You know, there's such a fantasy world, these super yachts. So you can really invent into it because if serious journalists were believing this gold super yacht existed, then I could make up anything, frankly, which is a great... On the one hand, that's quite untethered because, you know, if you're writing about somewhere like Dungeness, you've got a real world, which people really know. And you've got... Um, super yachts, you can basically put anything in them. You can have a swimming pool with a glass bottom that you can see sharks swimming underneath the yacht. You can have helicopter pads. You can have swimming pools that, that extend out the side, which they do have. You can have boats within boats within boats. They have boats that come out the side of boats and they have smaller boats coming out the other side. You know, you can do anything you want because the world is completely unhinged when it comes to billions. So it's slightly dangerous because you can just add anything on there. And so I invented really strange little things about um, the panic rooms and how they would work and things like that. And, you know, I spoke to boat designers while I was doing that and they said, well, I wouldn't do that. But you never know because people ask us to do this nonsense. So you can have it. And so it was wonderful to have this completely untethered world. And, you know, I've spoken to people who worked on super yachts and, of course, they have to sign NDAs. So they can't even tell you what happens on the most extreme super yachts. So it's kind of like a really great place for the imagination to go completely crazy. Well, I was interested in how much research you'd done because I presumed it was more than watching a few episodes of Below Deck. I tried not to watch Below Decks, actually, just because I thought that was too rich. I watched it after I'd written it and thought, oh, God, yeah, it fits. It's, it's all right. It's going to work. But no, I was speaking to a, a few people in that sort of yacht design area and they're all saying, oh, well, I, you know, it's so nice to have somebody writing about super yachts in a positive way. And I was thinking, well, I'll keep that very quiet because you know, I think, you know, what the world has learned since is that they are not only quite um, ridiculous places, but they're quite toxic, really, aren't they? You know, and it was, you know, it's it's been a bit of a strange timing coming out of the time. I think we're at the end of Super Yachts as an idea. Um, and I kind of snuck my novel in sort of right at the end of that, really. But, you know, I think we are the globally seeing them all being impounded and things like that. We're all going, woohoo, that's great, because we don't really like them. I was always amazed. I would, you know, went sailing in the Mediterranean and you go into these tiny little ports in Greece. And um, Greece has been through some rough times in the last 15 years. And then you see these massive, great billionaire super yachts turning up and you kind of think, why didn't they just riot at that point? You know, it's just they're such a weird and, and slightly obscene. You know, we all want to imagine being on them and that's fine, but they're quite weird. I was going to say, if I was given the option of a pedalo or a super yacht, then um, I'm afraid I would be on, <laughs> heading on to the super yacht. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. It is, I mean, it is nice fun to imagine that sort of kind of luxury lifestyle. But actually the kind of book ends, because when I wrote it, None of this ha war had happened. And actually, we rewrote it just to make sure that the ending happens just as the Ukraine war is starting. So that as a reader, you kind of know that this is the end of this era. Well, I was interested in that sort of the, the Russian element in the book. And if there are any changes that you'd made or that you still wanted to make, because it's it stood up for me. Oh, that's good. I was very, I was very worried when it started because I kind of thought how... How revolted are we going to be in this sort of world because of the war and stuff like that? But I may, what I did is I actually put the date, I put a date at the beginning of the book, which is the date I was mm. I was still writing. So, I, so the book is set in 2021 before this happens. And I want to make that sort of clear. And that was where my head was at um, for it. And I think it's kind of, you know, I don't think that that world is ever going to be quite the same anyway. So it's kind of a glimpse of that era when, when the, these people were welcomed <laughs> around the world. 
which has kind of slightly changed. But it hasn't made you change your holiday list requirements to uh, going on to super yachts. No, no. Um, <laughs> I might, uh, I might still, you know, if somebody did invite me on just for research purposes, I'd, I'd probably still, still pack my swimming trunks. <laughs> well, if you need an assistant, I'll be there because I'd love it. It sounded <laughs> amazing. I mean, it's got. I'm sure there are really brilliant people with really brilliant okay. super yachts as well. I'm not, you know, I'm sure there are really good people doing it, but the ones I'm writing about are the sort of people who just, uh, who, who have absolute power. Well, for all the lovely listeners who do have lovely super yachts, then uh, we'd be very willing to come and uh, do do some more research. I think that's <laughs> that's what we're saying. I mean, this book, this book has to be a film. Surely uh, it, that's been discussed so far, or are they waiting for... It has, it has, it's, um, I mean, it's optioned by BBC Studios. Um, and um, I keep sort of thinking I should email them and tell them there's a few super yachts around you can probably hire quite cheaply now if you need a set. Um, but they were, they were very keen. They kind of got the point of that and got the point of it to do it as a, as a sort of, um, as a series though, to keep the, uh, you know, there's a lot of tension that goes on and it's this unfolding tension on board the yacht. And they kind of really like that idea of this, this place where you don't know who people, who really people are on the yacht. You don't know who the bad people are. You know bad things are about to happen, but you don't know who are the people who are behind it or why. Uh, and, you know, it's in, to that extent, you know, I, it's a kind of locked room scene, mm. the first sort of two-thirds of the book. Uh, and uh, I think that's very attractive right now to, to um, television and makers because they paid me quite nice money. Well, that's I expect this to be made as a great film or series, so I, I'm looking forward to that. So uh, my next question was going to be, what is, what's going to be the next book, a thriller or a crime? But are you then doing a duet of writing still? Well, I am on a, on a book a year kind of thing. So the next one is actually a, a thriller, which I'm just actually handing in in two weeks' time, which is about um, a translator, um, an interpreter, who has lost his job because of COVID and is desperate to earn some money and finds himself interpreting in a very, very, very dubious uh, high-end business deal and goes into this completely without idea what, what he's stepping into. Um, and I just thought that was a lovely thing that somebody or other who speaks several languages and appears to be the idiot uh, in this thing actually ends up with extraordinary power because they're the only person in the room who understands everything that's going on and actually how can you use a power that doesn't involve muscle um, but involves the head mm. to actually um, try and get back to to try and get your freedom back in a very nasty situation oh that sounds that sounds great so the next book published by you will be a thriller not a crime is that correct yeah, and then the, uh, immediately after that, I'm starting another Cupidy book, which I'm dying to get back to because I've kind of parked that world, which will be effectively parked for a couple of years, which seems horrible. So I'm actually going to go after this and I'm going to go and stay in Dungeness or around it for a few weeks and just try and think about what that is because I want to bring bring that one back with a bit of a splash. Very good. We look forward to, to that. I'm just interested. I mean, I know from your journalist background, you can write anywhere and you know if you if your words need to be produced usually you can produce them but what this book has demonstrated to me is that y y as long as you've got a good story it doesn't matter what the genre is you you can just write it so uh, you know what else are you going to do dystopians sci-fi I'm just interested in what else you can put your mind to I I would really 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 love to have this genre back because, you know, what's really impressed me about so many writers, especially so many women writers, is that they grew up 
becoming literate on, you know, on locked room mysteries. You know, that's where they got their reading muscles from. And then, and then, you know, ten years ago, really, women started writing these books, which are the books they'd grown up with, the books that have found their their kind of voice with as as readers. And so you got a lot of people like Ruth Ware and, and Lucy Foley and, and and that going back to a form because publishing had kind of neglected it. Mm. You know, um, Paula Hawkins, all those all those people like that started what's been called psychological fiction. It's nothing. It's you know, it's not psychological fiction isn't really the right term for it. It's, it's kind of fiction really influenced by the classic um, golden era fiction of relatively few characters and you have to and, and, mm. and the way in which you can spin those turn them around. It's been brilliant actually but i realized that i'd grown up as a boy reading these sort of adventure thrillers um that were just everywhere in the 60s 70s 80s you know they were just like the market and they'd kind of dropped off and i just sort of thought i'd really want to bring that back because i think um while i love the idea of these quite hermetic environments that you get in a lot of the uh, contemporary fiction i also thought what about they also think we all want to travel especially after lockdown we want to go to exotic places and one of the classic things about all those sort of neville shoots alistair mclean hammond in books is they take you to places that you've never been but you'd really like to go so it's not about staying inside a house in that sort of shari Le Pena kind of way it's it's about going out and i thought there's a there's a thing there i know readers want to go back into that kind of world where it's all about you know like the classic early james bond stuff was about taking you to to bonkers places and, and I kind of think you know I'm missing that a bit you know that thrillers tend to be now set in Washington or some bit of America they don't take you to the big wider world in the same sort of way and I kind of want to do that because then I can expense it and travel there <laughs> sounds good that's reasonable I, I was interested what what do you hope for your writing career going forward from you know you've reached that such heady heights you've just been shortlisted as well we should say for the gold dagger congratulations with the crime writers association that was very exciting yeah so I look forward to hearing that you've won well I never even hoped for this to be honest this was beyond my wildest dreams because I've been I've been around the houses and I know how hard it is and how many talented writers there are trying to get in trying to get a, a you know a leg up in in publishing it's really hard uh, and if if somebody had told me you'd be on your 10th book out in the 10th book out you know this is the 10th book you know if you're even able to achieve that I'd think oh, well in my dreams but I just want to be able to carry on doing it it's it's just such a lark you know I so like uh, I say this the book I'm just finishing now I've had it's just been a real slog. It's just some been really hard. But generally, I love writing, and the idea that you're just somebody actually pays you <laughs> advances to write books, and then people are kind enough to say they've read it and they they like it, or maybe they don't like it all. But you know, it's just heaven at the moment. You know what I mean? I kind of found myself in a place where I've been trying to be for a very long time, and I'm quite happy here. But of course, I still want. You know, Richard Osman's sales yeah. would be quite nice. <laughs> yes. He's just greedy. He just needs to share it. Uh, yeah, he needs to spread it around a bit. Do you know what? I, I had this great... Um, I I talk about fi crime fiction and how I think it always has to have an element of reality in it because that's what convinces you that... If you can convince people in the real world, you can kill people mm. and convince them that people can be killed. And actually, the harder bit is to convince people of the horror. So I was giving this talk to, uh, to uh, Tunbridge Wells, WI the other day all about this thing and then I said but the trouble is all that's gone now because you've got Richard Osman who can just create a sort of fantasy world and everybody loves it so my theory about crime fiction is completely shot down and they said no 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 we hate Richard Osman's book 
I said, what? He said, yeah, he said there was a, a Waitrose in Tunbridge Wells, and there isn't. And they were furious. And for them, the world of the book disappeared the moment he put a Waitrose in Tunbridge Wells. So I'm right. Obviously, you do need to get your reality right. And obviously, they want a Waitrose in Tunbridge Wells, and they think they deserve it. <laughs> and if Richard's put it in a book, it needs, it needs to happen. Um, I'm interested as well in what the challenges are that you feel that you face as a, as a writer of so many books. I think the challenge is always to break through to the, the middle. You know, it's very kind saying I'm, I'm, I'm really successful, but I don't get, you know, I'm not in bestseller list. I've got a steady sale and things like that. And I think the real challenge is, is to break through because unlike TV or film, when there's so much money spent on an individual thing, if it's out, it's everywhere. Whereas books, uh, books are a tiny little item in a really crowded market and I think the real challenge is to break through always just to break through into a bigger sort of consciousness uh, and I think that's something that all writers face is is how do you park your creative side and actually try and become a brand which I think all writers mm. have to do and it's not what writers are necessarily very comfortable doing yeah um, and I think it's that establishing yourself as a voice so that people trust it enough um, so that people will buy a book uh, because you've written it and, and that obviously happens with very, very few writers. And in crime, you know, you could probably name 20 writers who can sell books because, you know, because I'm Val McDermott, I, I can sell a book. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, Ellie Griffiths has recently really moved into that area. And it's just a pleasure to watch um, people who are, are that talented and have worked so long at it. But, you know, I think that's a, that's always a challenge is just to sort of um, push that because the ideas are there and the ability to, to write. Is is kind of the easy bit. It's 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 a market. It's a very very weird industry. It's an industry that produces thousands and thousands of widgets in the hope that one of them is going to be the successful widget of the year, mm. uh, and then next year you have to make another thousand widgets that are completely different from the last lot. There's no industries like it. It's and the most wonderful thing about it, which is also the obstacle, is that it's entirely readers who decide. However much marketing you throw at things like that. Um, it's actually the readers who turn books into hits. Uh, people, I'm, I'm interviewing Paula Hawkins in a couple of weeks. And obviously she did this amazing thing with the girl on the train. Everybody says, oh, that was a brilliant marketing campaign. That was just a fantastic marketing campaign. Well, it was a good marketing campaign, but there have been 50 other marketing campaigns mm. that didn't produce, you know, 50 million seller books. Um, it's because the readers actually caught on to the moment and the readers like the zeitgeist. And I think that's the most amazing thing about this market is that whatever, however much marketing budget is put onto things like that, um, it's all about readers. And readers, re readers talk to readers and they say, we like this book and that's where the magic happens. And it's just like you can't control that. You've just got to wish for it. It's kind of luck because you need the right person who loves a book at the right time to be saying, uh, this is a fantastic book, read this can't engineer it no well they need to be reading this book my my last question is obviously a very serious question about signatures because this this new book dead rich is under your your shortened name gw shaw instead of william shaw so are you going to be changing your signature when people ask you to sign uh, <laughs> i've only just realized i've got to do that i think i've got to write gw shaw um <laughs> which it which yeah, yes, because they might think, <laughs> who's William? Why have I got this this man's name in my Yeah, I, I've been, so I, I did get out a sheet of A4 and, and practice. It's quite nice. I, you know, I've never, my first name's George. I've never been called George, but I um, am actually G.W. Shaw in real life. My um, my bank account 
as I would show, I've got holding a check here. It says GW Shaw, which I can show to you on the video, but luckily your readers won't see. Um, they will not see. But um, so I, I could, yeah, I'm going to have to get, I think a good swirl on the bottom of the G would be quite nice. Yes, but then I did see Ruth Ware saying authors that use their real names, do they sign it in a different way? Because otherwise it can be replicated for... Uh, checks and payments and so forth so yeah you need to make it different to your check signature damn damn i've got a lot of work to do between now and and the publication date haven't i if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers with juvederm volbella xc and juvederm ultra xc your lip look whether it's subtle or bold can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at juvederm.com today that's j-u-v-e-d-e-r-m.com add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with juvederm volbella xc or juvederm ultra xc do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So let's go on to the next book, which is Imposter Syndrome by Kathy Wang. Listen, just listen to this. I mean, somebody said, uh, where was it? Oh, yes. Silicon Valley meets Killing Eve. Ah, I think that's a great description. Well, let me read it to you. Julia Lerner is one of the most powerful people in Silicon Valley and an icon to professional women across the country. She is the COO of Tangerine, one of America's biggest technology companies. She's also a Russian spy. 
Julia has been carefully groomed to reach the upper echelons of the company and use Tangerine software to covertly funnel information back to Russia's largest intelligence agency. Alice Liu works as a low-level analyst within Tangerine, having never quite managed to climb the corporate ladder. One afternoon, while performing a server check, Alice discovers some unusual activity and is burdened with two powerful but distressing suspicions. Tangerine's privacy settings aren't as rigorous as the company claims they are, and the person abusing this loophole might be Julia Lerner herself. Now she must decide what to do with this information before Julia finds out she has it. <gasps> Let me do the first sentence for you. Uh, Leo. Chapter one, Leo. Whenever Leo met a person of interest, he liked to ask about his or her parents. If the response was cagey, he made note. And if he thought he'd go further, then he was careful to ensure the subject's family history paperwork was complete. Though it wasn't that Leo believed you needed good parents to be productive. In fact, in his line of work, bad parents were often an advanced indicator of success. I'll leave it there. I, I thought this was a phenomenal book. I thought it was so interesting. I love the cover of it. I love the premise of it. I just thought it's it's quite technical writing and I loved it. Um, it's one that you really want to immerse yourself in and enjoy. Um, they describe it as being razor sharp and I'd agree. And it's just, again, it's different, something different. And that that's what I like to read. So, yeah, excellent. Um, Imposter Syndrome by Kathy Wang. And the great news is we've got Kathy on now to do her five questions in five minutes. So Kathy Wang, author of The Wonderful Imposter Syndrome, welcome to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, we have five questions in five minutes, but no stopwatch. So you're OK. You're, you're safe here. The first question. Can you describe your book in less than a minute? I will try. Uh, the book asks the question, what if one of the world's most powerful female technology executives was, in fact, a Russian spy? Uh, the spy in the book is named Julia Lerner. She is a COO of a company named Tangerine, which I think you can equate to like a Facebook or Google. And what the mm -hmm. book really examines then is what happens when Julia is asked to put her, you know, quite cushy life um, in danger when her hand, when her requests from her handlers back in Russia um, increase and become more aggressive. Um, does she just give in or does she try to kind of wrest back some of that power? A great summary and a, and a great book. The next question is, who's your favourite character in the book, but it can't be one of the main characters, one of the smaller ones. Who was your favourite? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I would say maybe Leo, who is Julia's handler. He's kind of a smaller character in the book. He's one of my favourites because I always find it a little bit more difficult to write from a male perspective. So, you know, I have to put a lot of effort into it. And as a result, you really spend a lot of time thinking about it. I also having read many books about men having midlife crises, I, you know, I think it's always fun to write your own and to examine that. It makes you a little bit more sympathetic as well. So I, I would say he's, he's my favorite yeah. just because I put a lot of uh, time into him. Ah, oh, wonderful. Next one, bit tricky. Can you describe your book in three words? Comic, uh, thrilling, exciting, 
these are all aspirational descriptions. So I, I don't know, but yeah. I hope so. Yeah, that works. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, the fourth question, what was the your favorite food and drink that you consumed while you were writing imposter syndrome? Oh, that's a good um I I think it's probably ramen. I made a lot of instant ramen. So I make a Korean ramen. I think it's probably like the number one selling ramen in Korea. And I've tried all the other kinds, but this is like the basic, you know, cheeseburger version. So this it's just called shin ramen yeah. and you crack an egg on top. And um, as a result, it made it into the book because I don't have much of a social life. So I have to take every possible thing and put it into my fiction. So it's it's probably shin ramen. I, I ate it quite a lot, like twice a week. And then my doctor said, you you shouldn't do that anymore. So, so I stopped. <laughs> you said, no, I've got to keep eating while I write this book. I'll stop when I finish the book. Yeah, I actually wrote an email to her about it um, because at one point I was starting to go, do you know In-N-Out? It's like a popular California burger chain. So, yeah, so yeah. I was starting to go there and um, and then I was like, which one is worse to be consuming a lot because I need to know a trade-off. And um, she actually, she, you know, she went into like, what kind of order? What are you getting at In-N-Out? What are you getting at Ramen? And then, and then she said, you shouldn't be doing either of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, it produced a good book. So, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> oh, dear. I love that. Um, and the last question, what's been the best moment so far in your writing career? Oh my gosh. Um, I think for me, it's getting to interact with authors that I really have always admired and that I read even when I was kind of growing up. You know, I, I'm, I'm not a writer by trade and I wasn't trained in it. So I never met any writers. I've, I've never interacted with writers really before this. So to be able to meet someone who, you know, was writing, moved me so much when I was younger and, you know, to have them read my work, it, that's probably the most amazing feeling, right? You, you just never think that's going to happen. And, you know, when it does, you just, you feel like, you feel like, well, this, you know, it's been worth it. Well, that's great. But do you feel you know, because I'm excited to meet you. So do you get that from from readers as well now? Do you consider yourself to be one of those? No, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for being excited to meet me. That's really nice, but um, definitely not. I, I, I mean, sometimes people are, people are really nice and you get very kind emails and you get, you know, you, you'll get some like really exciting shout outs or something in the, in the media or something, but I, I don't think so. I mean, writers are like, you know, we are like the, I, I, I mean, for most of us, I feel like we're at the bottom of the barrel in terms of the, you know, right? Like if there is a reality TV star, like I don't, Big Brother, I guess in the UK, like if we call them Z-list in the TV yeah. side, like for us, they are A-list, right? For recognition yeah. and, you know, like publicity, right? So we are the Z-list compared to that. So I just don't feel like... Um, to be honest, it's just still feel like I don't have that feeling personally. You haven't been stopped in the street yet or screamed at as you as you go shopping. No, and I don't want to be. I mean, I would be afraid. It's, it's definitely not a fan screaming then. It's some other issue. Yes. It's your doctor saying don't buy the food. Yeah, it's some other problem. Like I parked badly or something. Yeah. Oh, no, that's great. Well, Kathy Wang, author of Imposter Syndrome. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much for having me on. Next book to talk to you about is What Time Is Love by Holly Williams. Goodness me, this was uh, this was a good book. And it's, well, let me read you the blurb. When Violet and Albert first meet, they are always 20. 
Over the decades, their lives collide over and over again, beneath Oxford spires and on the rolling hills of Abergavenny, in stately homes and feminist squats. Together, they must overcome differences in class, privilege, sexuality and ambition, whilst the world around them changes in ways they could never have imagined. And soon they are forced to question, what if they met the right person at the wrong time? Uh, uh, first sentence, come on, for the first stop going. Ah. Chapter one, April 1947. It started with the letter. A letter Letty had read over and over in the two months since it arrived on the doorstep, written on her friend's Rose's signature mauve coloured notepaper. Bertie and I are taking a walking holiday in the Brecon Beacons in April. Isn't that your part of the world? Would you like to meet us? I'm simply dying to see you again. OK, so um, today I got contacted by someone saying, oh, I really need you to recommend a book to me, but I don't want it there to be, I don't want sort of crime through, I don't want murders in it, but I want it to be a really good story and something a bit different. This is it. This is what I was saying. This is what time is love. It's different. I don't want to give it away because as I was reading, I was like, oh, OK, this is this is what this book is doing. This is something different. Um it's not your traditional love. It's it's not it's it's not a saga. It's just something that makes you think. Oh, it makes you think about timing and about who you're with. Uh, oh, yeah, it's good. It's a great read. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And if that's if what I've said so far makes you think, oh, okay. Honestly, have a read. I think you'd love it. And and this would be a good one for book clubs. Definitely. This would definitely be a, be a book club one um, because there are some really fascinating points to talk about. So, yes. What time is love? Holly Williams. Bravo. Excellent. So that's that book. Now we come on to The Young Pretender by Markle Aditi. Now, let me read you the blurb on this one. And I should say, Michael, I mean, Michael used to be um, a theatre critic. He's interviewed, you know, such incredible people, John Gilgood, all sorts. Um, even Stephen Fry has blurbed this book, an engrossing, enthralling and utterly captivating read, he said. And it is, it's a novella, don't you know? Well, is it? It's less than 200 pages. It's a short book, but it packs a punch. And um, particularly if you prefer more of a historical book, something that really focuses on the characters of someone, then I think you would find this very interesting. So, let me read you the blurb. Mobbed by the masses, lionised by the aristocracy, courted by royalty and lusted after by patrons of both sexes. The child actor William Henry West Betty was one of the most famous people in Georgian Britain. At the age of 13, he played leading roles, including, including Romeo, Macbeth and Richard III in theatres across the country. Prime Minister William Pitt adjourned the House of Commons so that its members could attend his debut as Hamlet at Covent Garden. Then, as rivals turned on him and scandal engulfed him, he suffered a fall as merciless as his rise had been meteoric. The young pretender takes place during Betty's attempted comeback at the age of 20 as he seeks to relaunch his career, but he's forced to confront the painful truths behind his boyhood triumphs. So what we've got here is a real character, a real person 
in history, but then this fictional account is portrayed. And let me read you the first sort of sentence-ish. Chapter one. On my last visit to the city in 1806, the Abbey Bells pealed to celebrate my arrival. A band played beneath my window the following morning and Papa complained that they expected a perquisite. A lady of rank coaxed the hotel keeper into costuming her as a serving maid and setting her to wait at my table. I do not recall her name and doubt that she would thank me if I did. I was 14 years of age. I thought this was a... a super sort of historical read really brings that time to life and about how success and failure deal different cards as i say it's less than 200 pages um really yeah something really different but enough about me let's hear from michael because he answered the five questions in five minutes so Michael Ardity, author of the wonderful book called The Young Pretender, welcome to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. Thank you for having me. I have five questions for you and you have five minutes to answer, but there's no stopwatch, so no pressure. The first one is a fairly simple one. Can you describe the book in about 30 seconds? Oh my goodness. Master Betty was arguably the most famous person in the country between 1804 and 1806. He was a young actor between 13 and 15 who played all the great roles at Covent Garden and Drury Lane with a company of adult actors. The whole world went mad for him and then he had a terrible fall. And I've written a book when during his comeback um, at the age of 20 and 21 when he attempts to recover his position um, and yet he's really rather forgotten what had happened to him first time round. And it's quite a short book as well, isn't it? It's the shortest book I've written by far. <laughs> um, it, it's Yes, it's 60,000 words um, because it's just his story. Um, I didn't want, I mean, I hope I've uh, created the, the Georgian social background, the theatre background. Um, a lot of famous actors appear, the Prince of Wales, uh, the, the Mr. Pitt, Pitt the Younger, um, and 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 the the whole way of life. But I didn't want lots of subplots. It focuses very much on one man trying to recover his life and indeed falling foul of his own memories. My next question is: Who is your favourite character and why? But of course, it can't be your main obvious character. What other character did you enjoy writing? I quite enjoyed them all, but I particularly enjoyed Mrs. Jordan. She has some some correspondence to Master Betty because she was a very, very famous comedian. There was the great tragedian who was Mrs. Sidden, and then there was the great comedian, Mrs. Jordan. And she was also the mistress of the Duke of Clarence, who later became William IV. And she had various children by him. I think it was 10. And they lived together mm. for 19 years. But she was never recognised by the king. The Duke of Clarence abandoned her in order to marry a wealthy heiress like all those royal dukes at the time. He was terribly short of money. I think that may be true of some of the royal dukes now, but that's a <laughs> And so he abandoned her. When we see her in my novel, um, she's now in late middle age, playing parts that are far too young for her, feeling that she's not a fool. She knows this. And the public both love her and also deride her. And she and Master Betty have a great sympathy for each other. But at the same time, um, she puts him in his place. Um, so I, I, there's a, a particular uh, episode in her dressing room when he visits her after 
the, her performance that he sees, which I hope will be quite poignant. Can you select three words that summarise this book? Theatrical, poignant, redemptive. A strange question. What was your favourite food and drink you consumed while writing this book? Well, my, there's no question that my favourite food is chocolate. Um, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I am... I used to have an, I've moved, but I used to have a loft. And there I kept surreptitiously various books called (laughs) like The Chocoholic and Chocolate, The Consuming Passion and various others. Um, And I recently had a birthday and and I had some lovely chocolate. Um, So there's no question of that. Um, Drink, I I, I don't know, apple juice, I think, probably. (laughs) I must be herbal tea. I want to be very discreet about this. That's wonderful. That's that's. That's great. The final question is, what's been the best moment so far in your writing career? Genuinely, think I particularly, I've, I've written largely, this is a very different book for me, because it's the first book uh, that's, that's um, clearly about the theatre, which has been a part of my life. Most of my books have dealt with faith in in very varied ways, and certainly not in any religious way. In fact, quite the opposite. Um, but I have had a lot of letters over the years, from people who've responded to various of those books and, and told me that they've helped them profoundly on their own faith journeys and helped them to reconcile their own spirituality with their sexuality, which is something I've done in my own life, I hope, and certainly have explored in, in my books. And so I think that, I think most writers, I, I don't know, I can't speak for them, that would say it was the response of um, readers that means the most, but in my for my particular case, it's the response of people who said that um, that, that 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 has helped them on their way. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, Michael Arditi, author of The Young Pretender, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much. And the final book is this Quick Reads publication, um, and this is one by Santa Montefiore, and it's called The Kiss. One family holiday will change everything. It's a long time since I've read one of Santa's books, but here we go. Here's the blurb. Sometimes your biggest mistake can also be a blessing. Madison has always known she had a different father from her siblings, but it wasn't until she turned 18 that she learned his name, Robert. And now she wants to meet the man who shares her fair hair and blue eyes. Robert is a very lucky man, a big house, beautiful wife, three handsome sons. 18 years ago, he made a mistake, a brief fling that resulted in a daughter nobody knows about. Robert must finally tell his family the truth. Will they ever be able to forgive him and accept Madison as one of their own? This is 115 pages long and I loved it. It must be so hard to write a good story in such few words and pages because you can't build in all the layers that you might. But reading this made me think, well, maybe I could go back and read a Santa book. You know, worse, stranger things have happened. Um, So I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yes, they're simple stories. Of course they are. Uh, but it does sort of open a door to an author that you might think, well, maybe you read them a long time ago, as I have, or maybe you haven't read them. It it was just, and it's a story that I still remember. It's, oh, must be about 10 days, two weeks ago since I read the book. And that might sound like nothing. But to be honest, when you read, uh, well, I'm reading at least five books a week, you know, you do get 
get through them. But that story still stands out in my head. So, yes, it was a lovely read. So there, there we go. Hopefully you've got, well, I imagine that there are quite a few books I've talked about today that you're intrigued in. Um, so let's just do the quick recap. So we've had Dead Rich by G.W. Shaw. Uh, of course, G.W. Shaw is William Shaw, who's published all the wonderful uh, crime books that we, I've talked to you about before, the uh, D.I.Q.P.D. books. Wonderful. So that's Dead Rich. Then we've had Imposter Syndrome by Kathy Wang. Then we've had What Time is Love by Holly Williams, The Young Pretender by Marco Arditi, and finally, The Kiss by Santa Montefiore. So that's your lot. I've probably mispronounced so many names today. I really do think I have pronounced everybody's name wrong today. So I win the prize for that, for being the most embarrassing podcaster in the world. But th there you go. Some great books. I can't wait to hear your thoughts as you get immersed in those stories. And I've got some brilliant books to talk to you about next week as well. So just look after yourselves and I'll see you very soon. Take care now. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.